Welcome everyone to the seventh episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, we've got a very special guest with us today. You want to you want to intro and do a little segue for us here? So today we have uh, Lucas, which is one of my boys. I've known him for a long time. What's his last name though? Lucas. <laughs> full, full, full name, man. Come on. Well, Lucas Duarte. I grew up with him together in the West Island in Montreal. Um, we didn't go to the same high school, but uh, we connected through mutual friends and we stayed close and then we went to university together. So Lucas in this topic today of um, in relation to institutional and retail investing, uh, how to build a professional career as a millennial. Lucas today is like a perfect example. We'll get into that with him because uh, that's the kind of route he chose and he succeeded in doing it. I was kind of like, I, you know, I saw him in his, uh, in his three month period in uh, Toronto and all those things. So some nice stories over there. Um, yeah. Hey so guys. yeah, so that's it. So Lucas today is going to be here with us. Hey guys, pleasure to join you. It's really cool what you guys have going on. Uh, been following your recent episodes and you guys have been gaining some nice traction. I think gonna it's gonna turn out to be quite a nice podcast series going forward so uh lucas yeah go i was just gonna say like thanks for coming on man i think you're (laughs) the right thing i think what nick meant too was this is really going to be the difference between retail institutional and how to get your foot in the door right yeah Uh, 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 other professional so lucas why before we make this like a really big conversation why should the listeners what what experience do you have right now that would that makes our listeners realize hey like we should actually listen to this guy yeah so actually my path uh how i got to where i am was was quite unique usually in finance i I mean i'm sure you know studying finance to get into the investment bank world requires stellar grades of course you need to do volunteering you need to somehow own your own business or be like the top dog to really stand out so to be honest, I started off my university years, first semester, was not used to the different workload. So started off not having a 4.3 GPA kind of thing. So I actually worked hard from there on, got in to where I needed to be. But I did that through maybe a different round, not getting A plus, A plus in every class, but working in internships. And I found that that's going to be crucial to you getting in which I was lucky I did internships so basically starting at RBC I did four internships throughout my uh, university starting at RBC's back office and I literally just worked my way up until I I had a goal I wanted to get on the trading floor and I eventually landed an internship on the trading floor from there on where was that one that one was in Toronto on the equity derivative desk nice and um from there on, once you have the stamp of approval on largest banks in Canada's trading floor, it was kind of a game changer. Every job or posting for 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 um, other internships that came up, it was easy. they easily interviewed me. Whereas in the past, you know, maybe one in 10 wants to give me an interview because no one wants to give a kid without experience the chance. For sure. Especially, so, um, especially in that world too, where it's all about, you yeah, know, high GPAs exactly. and stuff. Exactly. It's uh, it's very dog eat dog. It's it's like um, it's like when you go to the recruitment little uh, seminars where it's, it's kind of like a coffee chat with all the people from the industry. You see the students uh, piling around people like little piranhas, and it's like okay, 
how can I, you know, you're fighting against like hundreds of kids for one job and you got to fake that you're like the best in the world. Do you think, do you think there's a lot of students that were, um, that were trying to take the experience, like trying try to taking the route that led with experience and internships or most students are just focused on their grades? You'll see the most successful of the students that really get into big jobs, big, um, let's say I have a target get into big American investment bank or whatever it may be they'll know the formula to get in and yes they'll get good grades and yes they'll do internships but there's a balance and they'll get involved in in academic um the um, student associations so and everything to prop yeah up exactly you need to, you really need to get involved in everything so but then there's others who will just focus on grades and then come graduation it's extremely tough to say, hey, give me a job in an investment bank when I have no experience, when there's literally a hundred other kids that have experience as an intern on one of the desks or Scotiabank, TD, you name it. So um, it's quite vital that you, you want to get find in. Find a way to, you like, need to build your resume. You need to do internships. Like uh, yeah. internships is it was crucial to my success, but it's also crucial to, to everyone's success. A lot of banks they will hire from their internship pool of candidates that come in in the summer, um, maybe 50% or, or higher will get an offer to come join me, join the bank after they graduate. So if you're not in the internship pool, you're not it's getting, hard, it's yeah. like extremely hard. So wait, so you got your job now right out of school, right? So yeah, after RBC, I came back, did another semester of school, and then I applied. I wanted to stay in Montreal, so I applied to um psp which is on the buy side it's quite quite a different role Very in terms of yeah. what what you do on the buy side vs what you do on the sell side um so did that on their trading desk um can speak a little bit about that after how i feel about the buy side trading versus sell side and then after that psp i graduated and then got an offer in april to join Societe Generale, which is a French investment bank. And um, that's it. And then in June, July of that year, I started my first day. And uh, so basically, for a little bit of color, I work on a cross-asset um, derivative trading desk um, in Montreal here. So we're pretty much all sales traders in Montreal, which means that we will service all of our client base. We have all the institutions that you can think of here in uh, Quebec and if they want to interact with our bank meaning ask for pricing or trade with us or want research or whatever it may be we are technically the uh, sales representatives who are like the main points of contact between the investor our bank and it will come through us so because we're a small desk we're two people we I started um, it was seven people on the desk and I started in a very ferocious year, I think, to start in sales and trading because there was mass layoffs at every bank, Morgan Stanley, HSBC, Deutsche Bank, obviously, Société Générale, BNP. It was just nonstop job cuts, job cuts, job cuts, and more job cuts. And, and it, was, it was my first year out of school and seeing this was, was nuts. So we what, started seven men. Was that- now we're down. Was that because of the of the big correction we saw, like two thousand beginning of two thousand and eighteen? There was like a massive dip. Is that why banks were like trimming their whole like workforce? Sorry to interrupt. I was just curious. 
I think, yeah, it comes down to just the sell side being squeezed over time. There's been commission pools that are going down. Is there, is, isn't there all, like, I, I think there's also the, um, the whole transition that banks are starting to see with, like, uh, depending more on internal systems and computer software and AI? In general, just the sell side, they, back in the Wolf of Wall Street days, like, you know, there's pride and joy. Everyone's just, money's coming in. There's just, every, there's just so much money. You're not cutting employees. But now it's just the trading flow is starting to go towards more DMA, which is direct market access. So buy side clients are not even going to use a dealer anymore. They're going to do it themselves. Obviously, lower commissions there. There's, there's so many different sources of liquidity that, and cost cutting going on at the buy side that they're trying to reduce the amount they pay to brokers. And um, so the sell side has seen at least like 30% decrease in commissions and trading revenues in the last like 10 years. So with that, the staff has to shrink and unfortunately bonus pools, of course, get hit as well. But you survive. So that's it. So I started, there were seven people and now they're down to two, just me, actually three, but one's commodities. I don't work on the commodities desk, but um, just me and a senior guy. So it was was several seniors and me, and now it's just one junior and one senior. So quite an interesting time to join for me, actually, it was it was an excellent opportunity because I, um, by the nature of just being thrown on a desk and being shorthanded, I had to assume a lot of responsibilities. Many clients that we cover, there's big ones, there's small ones, there's, there's different types. And some of the responsibility just totally went to me. Hey, you take over this. You're going to be the guy who does this client, this client. I can't do with that. Like, we're, we're two people. You can't, you need to give some to the other guy. So that's why I stepped up and that, it was an excellent experience for me. Um, and even now, like I'm touching cross product, cross asset trading desk means um, we're doing all anything our client wants to trade. So it could be bonds, FX, equities, the, um, and obviously we're on derivatives. So swaps, futures, options, and then there's more exotic products. And that's it. So I have to learn all these products. I'm on a cross asset desk. And then now on top of it, we're shorthanded. So now I have to assume more senior responsibilities, covering clients, trading for clients, putting out trade ideas or research in front of the clients I cover. And uh, so it's more or less, more or less it. So, so, so not only have you had sort of a chip on your shoulder since the get-go, right? Because you, you, you talked about, okay, I didn't have like the, the 4.0 or 4.2 GPA, but you like really worked your ass off to like get to this point. So like, and that's also kind of like when Nick and I, like we admire people that do that. Like you have your chip on your shoulder, like, and you have the will and effort to go out and work hard and get to where you want to be. I think that's like, kudos to you man and like that that's what's really cool now i think the main thing though that the listeners might not understand quite well right now i think is just what's what's really the difference between the buy side and the sell side right because that's sort of under the institutional side so maybe just talk about that before we kind of get into like you know the whole conversation of the situation we're in right now sure so the sell side which um and the buy side so the sell side pretty much as the term suggests you're selling products right so the bank will have a bunch of stuff, whether it's securities, indices, or whatever, and they're going to try and sell that to the buy side. The buy side, they're going to be managing money. They're going to be taking risk, uh, discretionary decisions, trade, and 
basically investing this money for their um, whoever their that there's a pension or whatever. So on the buy side, it's extremely different if you're going to get into trading. I'm going to talk about trading specifically because that's my uh, domain. Domain. I'm not really into portfolio management. Um, so on the trading desk, on a buy side, um, many people don't know this, but you're not actually trading. You're not taking discretionary decisions and trading stocks on your own. So what you do, most buy sides are set up. Most buy side um, shops are set up that they have a centralized trading desk and they have many internal PMs managing money. It could be a long short equity fund. Another one's doing an international fund. Hundreds or maybe not hundreds, but there's quite a few PMs and internal funds managing money. And every time they have an order or they're selling or buying a security, they're going to route that order to the centralized trading desk. And the trader's job on the buy side is to take that order and to provide the best execution possible. Meaning which dealer am I going to go show this to? They have an order, let's just say to buy 10,000 um, QQQ options. They're going to go, which bank should I show this to? Who gave me the best price last time? You don't want to show everyone either because then you kind of gives an idea that someone can front run you. So the trader on the buy side is going to take his knowledge and whatever to go and find the best quote for the PM. Maybe he even might have color. Hey, don't trade this now. Let's just wait a bit. I see this and this happening. Let's just cool it off. Maybe trade half now, trade half tomorrow. So the trade on the buy side is really routing orders to the sell side, to whatever bank he feels is best. And um, kind of you're doing that. You're kind of taking orders handing them off from getting prices from, from the, from the brokerage of your choosing. And then you give the best, you give the price back and then to your PM and then you execute the trade on the sell side. It's entirely different. So on the sell side, what we're doing is you're essentially market making your, you have inventory trader will have an inventory. Let's just say U S index. So every U S index quotation that comes to my bank from a sales trader, which is me, who, who is responsible for managing the buy side. So the sales trader gets an order from the buy side. He will then go to the trader of, uh, it could be European index. There's, there's dozens of traders, but he'll go get pricing from the appropriate trader. And that trader on the desk is going to, is pretty much showing his best bid and best offer to price whatever comes at him. You're, you're not a chooser. You can't just, just unfortunately, after the financial crisis, there's no more um, like- uh, you're, talking, you're talking about 08 though, right? Yeah, exactly. The prop, after the, the rulings came in, there's no more prop trading. You can only trade off the, your client's flow that comes into your bank. So on the sell side, what the trader does is he pretty much runs a book, a trading book. Um, in my example, US index. And he will essentially manage the U.S. index risk and every quotation, every uh, request that comes to our bank, he'll price it where he's willing to buy it, where he's willing to sell it. You might have, you might have a book that's more skewed towards buying or skewed towards selling. So you might be more aggressive or not. And then once you get an order, you, you give a price, client says, yes, they want to trade with you. Your job now is you have to hedge that. So they'll start hedging their, their delta risk. And now you have a position in the book. It could be like um, 
$10 million trade that the client wanted to buy, you, you effectively just sold them $10 million. So you can't create stock out of nothing. So that means you're short and you have to hedge that, buy it back. You might buy a similar product. Or, so the trader on the south side is essentially market making, hedging risk. He's managing a book and, and uh, that's where like the real, real, when I say trading happens, it's, it's more people's vision of a sell side trader. Right. So when, when all those uh, order quotes are coming in, like that's really what's happening behind the scenes, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's one trader who's, well, there's several on the desk, but there's a trader and like his juniors that are pricing just us index. There's hundreds of clients maybe around the world, like all at once coming in, Hey, price this, buy, buy this, sell this. And you have to show prices. You're, you're obliged as a market maker to show a market. You can't just be like, no, 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 every time. And then no one's going to want to trade with you. Yeah. So you have to show a market. And a lot of times, obviously clients are smart institutional clients. They're, they're, they have the right idea in mind. So you might not be down to take the other side of that trade or go, get, go against that, but you still have to show a market. And obviously the trader will price it accordingly and then he will hedge that. But there's times where you can lose a lot of money just like that. Boom. Especially, then, when, especially when the prices are so volatile right now, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you like, do you like all, do you like this or do you ever want to like do a transition? Like, so in Montreal, none of the big investment banks headquarters are here. So they don't manage their risk of their trading books in Montreal. That means that you can be a sales trader. A sales trader is essentially someone who, like I told you before, he manages all the relationships with the clients. I'll also trade agency orders in my system so I can get an order to buy or sell something. Rather than going to my trader who's gonna price it, I can go in the market myself and buy it. So that's Montreal, you're essentially a sales trader. But yeah, I do foresee a time where trading was initially what I wanted to do maybe transitioning into a more trading role. But to do that, you're going to have to venture out to where banks have uh, their risk books, which is to so relocation. So relocation is kind of like the, like is, it's, it is in your mind right now. If I were to pursue a, a career in trading yeah. out of Southside Institution uh, Bank, yes, uh, essentially I'll have to make a move to Toronto or um, New York, Hong Kong, something like that. Nice. So right now, I think, you know, I think we understand and I think the listeners kind of get, and again, it's, it's such an interesting part of the whole business too, because it's so, um, it doesn't get really talked about a lot. People only see, you know, price quotes, they see stocks, they see stuff like that. Uh, but you have your CFA, right? Like the level three. Yeah. So yeah. I did my level one. I started it before getting my job, which started everything at RBC on their trading floor wanted to like push my resume you know what can i do more to get that shot in and then i started my cfa weeks after i uh got hired so come june i was doing the cfa i'm like oh do i even need this anymore but i i, <laughs> I stuck i stuck to it and then i did my level two now i'm on my level three and thankfully with covid19 it got postponed <laughs> so i have a little bit more time to study for that one it's funny though, because now we're, we're literally in probably a bigger financial crisis. We'll call it a health crisis right now because that's what it is. But um, on a, on, I would say on an every fundamental aspect of where you look at it, it kind of is impacting everything. It's, uh, it's definitely a, one of the biggest 
financial crises we will ever see in for now. Twenty million dollar, twenty million jobless rate. Yeah, so we lost. So we lost. So they were saying that since the Great Depression, every job that was created in the United States and more was lost since then. You're talking about the 08 crisis, though. Uh, every every job that was created in the last 12 years no, was lost. No, it was since the Great Depression. The Great Depression was quite a while ago. No, I'm pretty uh, that's, sure it was. That's, that's 1929. I think you mean the yeah, last recession. I believe no, it, was, great uh, no, it was 10 years ago. Was it 10 years ago? It was 10 years ago. Anyway, the point is, this is the most crazy thing I think any of us have ever seen. Um, and it's obviously going to affect the future of the industry. And uh, I feel like this is the right time for all of us to kind of just be in it, you know. Um, what are your... Oh, sorry, the Great Recession. That's great, why. Yeah, Great Recession. The Great Recession, not yeah. the Great Depression. I thought that my words there. Oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at, least, at least he's honest. honest okay. Yeah, because honest I, have, I, have, I have all... Everything is my phone. All I have, like, every listed of all the databases, everything I post. So I just went to refer to it again. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, basically every job that was created since 08 is gone. Uh, both Canada and the U S I think Canada is even worse, but like, this is an important time, I think right now for the industry. Um, me personally, our workflow has been insane. I mean, we're, we're, we're raising money for cannabis companies. Like who's buying that stuff, but there's demand for yeah. that. We're raising money for mushroom companies. Like this is the yeah, new wave and this is just the way yeah, it's just the way the industry works. Right. So like, what are you, what are you guys doing right now? Like, what are you doing Lucas in particular right now? Or these, these last like four months that you've been at it, like what have you been doing and what, it, what have you, what have your biggest takeaways been as a result of that? So doing on the trading desk at work or my personal, uh, both, whatever's career, whatever's career oriented. Um, so personally, obviously this is a huge uh, dip. What we're, what we're seeing right now in the market, which could bring like generational impact. opportunities. But and also so negative impact. What sure I'm looking for obviously is buy whatever's on sale at a good price that has tremendous value that I can hold on going forward. Yeah. I think personally my view is is skewed to to hey this this recovery is is too overzealous. I, I personally think that, well, the market right now is trading at a 20, 20 times forward PE multiple in the, the highest it's ever been in the last 10 years was 23. So because of the tech, you're essentially paying full price right now. If you're going to go long the S and P. Well, they're also like, look, Microsoft is almost back at full time high. Amazon pushed new haul time highs. Apple is not far off. Like the tech. When, exactly. What, and how heavy, how heavy segmented is the indexes based off of, uh, tech? Yeah, it's, a uh, the top, uh, five companies in the S and P 500, uh, are responsible for, I think some, some ludicrous, percentage yeah, of the of, movement of so them. if they're moving forward because I, I look at all these companies are worth trillions of dollars roughly around trillion dollars it's not so if you have five companies worth around a trillion dollars all moving forward obviously it's going to push the market in a direction but they're all tech-based so yeah. that's why i think that like when i'm looking at the way i'm looking at sectors and industries now from a fundamentals perspective it's there's a switch occurring so tech has a better outlook than most industrial manufacturing companies so I kind of see why Amazon is killing it because all the little guys can't do shit. So Amazon is doing well. Um, it's an opportunity right now for a lot of tech companies. Exactly. So in my personal accounts, I'm looking to go long, but I do think that maybe another dip is warranted. We're about to see what 
20 million quarters. people unemployed, there's going to be economic consequences. Oh, we, already so that, have, we already have China in the first quarter recession <laughs> and a negative GDP. We have Hong Kong in the first quarter negative GDP. We have the whole world that's going to about to enter that. And most importantly, not everyone's going to get their job back when nope. this is done. Um, restaurant and the tourism, tourism, for example, tourism, tourism, tourism everything, yeah. a lot is going to be reduced. And I think restaurants are the big one. Airlines, even when this goes back to normal, no one's hopping on a, on a plane right away. Exactly. No yeah. one. Borders are going to still be very constrained. Like there's going to be hotels are going to struggle. You're going to have restaurants are going to struggle. Like the south of Italy, you're, uh, the Mediterranean is going to struggle. Major cities like New York who have a Apparently tourism. Sicily is paying people to come visit the island. Oh, yeah. They're, they're going to pay the – so they're paying – the hotels and stuff to give extremely reduced prices. So this way, us tourist people, we can go. But like, who wants to go when you know there's still the problem going on? And exactly, from an economic perspective, when a massive crash happens, people have sentimental attachment to what just happened and they'll start saving more. They'll Less decrease spending. consumption. Yeah. And it just the economic machine how it works well if you increase saving decrease consumption the economy yeah, is not going to churn exactly. as much as what it used to in the past it's going to take a right. couple of years at least so getting back to topic anyways my personal view i would uh, wait for a little drop here to start buying some stocks that's what i'm personally doing at work on the other hand it's uh just crisis has been probably one of the biggest beneficiaries of the investment banks divisions have been the trading desk. It's just every client is trading. There's trading volumes obviously are way, way over average. I mean, a it's lot crazy, banks, right? Like a lot of banks who reported have reported stellar trading numbers. So yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It's uh, everyone wanted to take advantage, buy, sell, buy this, buy that. So it's been quite nice actually going uh, the last one. Dan, you would like his because he was he's been playing with oil for a bit. Yeah, I, I did. Because <laughs> he he's been he's been playing it too. Nice, nice. I traded oil. I remember when I was on my student exchange, uh, 2016. There's a oil crash where it touched twenty three dollars. That's nothing compared to right now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I remember making that trade and then went retraced to forty. I'm like, whoa! So like, uh, this oil uh, thing that's going on right now. I was uh, keeping an eye on it to see what's going on, but I think what the oil problem is is something else on its own. There's, yeah. It's a demand there's, issue. It's demand, it's, but d yeah, exactly. It's primary demand, but it's a demand there's also issue. supply side. It's just so oversupplied. There's now floating storage going on. Like you, we've never seen this before. People literally cannot take delivery of physical oil because there's nowhere to store it so that's where we saw like the negative wti contract but so crazy it, stuff from everything i've seen at work like being on energy calls and stuff i i don't know anyone who says this is going to recover anytime soon it's a at slow, least a next slow very steady. slow uh, the average consensus that i've seen is like one year to two years out we're going to start to see 30 to 40 dollars again some, some, some kind of recovery right yeah exactly like right now it's just it's just a huge shock to the market and huge oversupply that you can't you can't get out of this by doing a little opec cut not little as a historical cut but it's just yeah. not enough so um yeah and um, we'll so if I were to ask you, 
because obviously you did the educational route, you did the grade, you did the CFA one, you did your CFA two. Do you think that's like the way, so your educational system in terms of what you did at school, did it actually help pertain to what you're doing now or was it a whole new learning process outside of school? So school has, for me, has um, benefited me by teaching me the business acumen to give you the, when you're doing an assignment or, or you're studying for your final to, to figure out methods of how, how to learn and figure out how to achieve that goal, which is I like get that good grade. And you take that with you on the job. Like, okay, I now know these skills of how to learn or yeah, these skills beat, on how to do it. things. So you learn the, the acumen that's responsible to for your know-how and drive. But they're because they're basic skills. But exactly. But in terms of the specific fundamentals of what i'm doing which is like looking at a relative value trader a trend following strategy i don't learn this and you can't learn this in school it's like you learn it on the job but even the way we like all of us us three the way we go about doing most of our equity analysis or the way we go looking at trends or the way we go looking at technical graphs or honestly even for you like we did all this outside of school we didn't you didn't do this at school this was us talking, spending hours, just hanging out and talking. Same with you. It was just you, school. You never, I never had these conversations at school. Never. It, school. it was more about large cap, like stocks, you know, that's, that was. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, so even when they did that, it was okay. For example, the management class was do a report on their ratios and the balance sheet and what it could mean. Okay. Yes. But in reality, if you're going to look at the balance sheet ratio, there's so many more questions in terms of the fundamentals of the business you have to also go analyze to even interpret the balance sheet right but i would but i would also say school is kind of like that base to give you sort of like that foundation right it's not exactly. you're not, you're, yeah i, I think school for in finance you learn your a b's and c's you learn what cap m is you learn how to discount cash flows you learn all these different theories and, but all, some of those things are not really necessary but, for the, yes, the retail it's side true now you for come the to the side. investing world I'm not uh, like calculating, I'm not unlevering my beta or calculating a cap M or, or finding out the efficient frontier. Like you kind of, it's nice to know. There is a separation. Like look, most but of the things you know. If you're going to go work, it's, it depends your job. I think like, yes, if you're going to go work on a equity derivative trading desk, don't expect to, for a formula you learned in, in finance 101 to help you out. No, exactly. But the thing is, that's what we were saying before though. There's a huge, there's a, there's a segregation, there's like um, a disconnect between the reality of going the institutional route and being the retail side. But we but can, I, I was, we I'll can say, say this, that like, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, some things you learn in school, like it is very relevant. Like if you want to calculate a fair value of the future, yes, okay. that, that's going to go, you're going to learn it in school. So like, I need to know how to do that. And is the future trading rich or poor? But you, you kind of you learn these little things in school that can help. But but you really realistically no, I wouldn't say my business communication skills or analysis or, or certain certain classes that were just totally irrelevant. I, I agree, some are irrelevant. Look, if you look for example, take me. I didn't but, I, I didn't take the financial route. I took the accounting route. I have an accounting degree, but I didn't really pay attention. Con three hundred eight, the one we took at uh, John Molson. You took that. You took that, right? Yeah. Okay, I personally didn't really like the class. <laughs> and I personally also, granted, I didn't really pay attention much in school, at university that is at least, but I didn't really, I didn't get it. I didn't get the picture of finance. You learn the A, Bs, and Cs in that class, what is 
discounting cash funny, flows, for example. It's funny and that all, you bring that up though. Cause like that basic finance class, I also just didn't like it. It was when yeah. I got to like the level, like the later on where I was like, Whoa, yeah. like that yeah, was like specific. portfolio management. Like that, that kind of like sparked a little bit of curiosity in my brain, you know? And then I feel like it's kind of on us to kind of go out. What I was going to say before was just like, yeah, there's always going to be a disconnect between stool and reality. It's just so funny. The stock market, there's a disconnect between the stock market and on the economy. So it's like finance has like this weird yeah. circle that's always like, everyone's always puzzled, even the professionals, right? Yeah. People, I think a lot of people don't realize the depth and the complexity that is the finance world. It literally, the finance oh, world is about complex. how, it's about how money moves and yeah. literally everything about this world is the way money moves. It's, yeah. it's seeing and learning about cross assets. It's, you get to learn about really the depths of the financial market that I, I had no idea. And there's still so much to learn. Like, even though I'm focused more on the retail side as a value investor and an equity analyst type style, Lucas, you, everything you do, honestly, for me, half the time when we're having a conversation, it's a learning time. For me. Yeah. So I got to sit, listen, and ask questions to you because things that you do, I don't even still understand or I still have to learn a shit more about. There's a huge, and, it, and even then for me, for what we consider our millennials and our generation, I'm, I, I feel like I'm considered someone who actually knows a significant amount. But again, it's a, tif, a completely different aspect of what you do. Exactly. Completely different. And uh, yeah, back to your point, institutions versus retails, what is the difference? What I learned when I came into industry as retail you're just it's very binary meaning up or down you buy it or you sell it one outcome and very plain vanilla whereas you get to the institution world and they left that behind a long time ago now they're trading cross asset volatility swaps cross asset correlation doing some relative value trade but taking advantage of the VIX term structure, futures curve, selling one month, buying the other, buying convexity, selling convexity, selling skew. It's crazy like what they trade and how they make money. It's just like another level of sophistication that you, you can't do that as retail. Re retail, retail investors just, they, they wouldn't even understand what a flip swap on the VIX is, it, for example. <laughs> I just made exactly. that up, but. <laughs> yeah but, but it's uh it's there's so many different products and, and stuff that you a i don't even know if it's feasible to do an account you're going to need to put post serious margin if you want to trade all these things b a lot of this stuff is is dealt otc which is over the counter oh, which is a private contract between the bank and the, the investor so you can't really do that as a retail so it, it makes it extremely challenging to, if you want to do a carry trade, like you're going to have to do this on your own in your, your personal account post margin. We're going to have to probably trade one contract because you don't meet the margin requirement for more. So it, it's like not even, it's not even the same game. Do you think, do you guys think like, cause, cause I didn't do the finance course in school. Oh, well, except for Con 308. I think that was the only one, right? Um, I've, I've done. All no, but me personally, I'm just talking about me for me personally. I think the only one I did because I did accounting. So me, I think it was only 308. Yeah, that would be the, the, the uh, probably the only one that you have to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So my question would be to this. Do you think that the finance, uh, the finance program did a good job at segregating the different categories or different parts of the finance world in terms of like in making it clear that there's the institutional side, there's the buyer side, there's the seller side, then there's the retail way. You have to be invest. You have to be 
you have to choose your own courses pretty much uh, once you get to the 400 level. So if someone who's interested in private equity or private but markets, they make they're not going to go learn about the public market. Yeah, but do they make that clear to sh make you understand that, okay, if this is what you're trying to do. Like, let's say you just want to learn, you want to be really good at personal wealth development. Okay, go take these type of classes. Oh, you want to work for an institution? You want to go look on the sell side? Go look, go learn these type of things. You're going to take the CFA route? Go make sure you're focused on these type of classes. Like accounting, for example, they literally segregated. They say, if you're going to do your CPA, you must take these classes because it's going to help you. Things like that. But did it do that? Does it does it do that for you? I, I there's no cookie cutter thing that's presented in a way that hey take these courses if you want to do public markets hey take these courses if you want to do private markets hey take these if you want you kind of like do your own research and figure out what interests you. Um, do you think most people? Do you think most finance guys now coming out of these programs like everyone you know that I know? Where do you like? Do you think they're headed in the direction you're heading, or they're completely doing like minimal stuff in the world of finance? It because depends. There's, I've been in student associations with people who are go-getters like me and you. Yeah, but then get involved and but have good grades. Like majority, in, not the minority. Those people have a goal and they know where they want to be and they'll get their internships and they'll get in. The majority, like I've been on soccer teams with people in finance and they just kind of cruise by, graduate, and now they decide what they want to do so but they assume that by then it's it's like too late you don't have your so internship so they assume like these are the people that are assuming that the degree itself is going to dictate an outcome when there's so much more learning to be done and it's, it's like as dan like you i, I think, think it also comes i also think it just comes down to having a goal too right like the yeah, example exactly. with lucas was like hey i want he's like lucas said he's like i want to be in sales and trading you had that in your second year of university. You wrote that down somewhere. You're like, I'm going to do this. What do I have to get there? I find if you're not clear on sort of what you want to do, you end up being like, you know, you coast through your degree and then you get out in the workforce and you're like, wait, I don't have any internships. What happens? You end up going working for like a bank, for example, and it's not what you expected, right? I'm, like, I'm, does that make sense? Yeah. But yeah. I feel like it's kind of like me. Like I coast like... I go into university. I didn't, I didn't not at all remotely even come out thinking that my outcome was going to be, I'm going into finance. I'm going to become an investor. I'm going to be doing this. And like, that was nowhere near remotely and my that's outlook. Fair enough. I guess that's like, um, probably a problem with the school system in general. It forces you to choose what you want to do at a young age. And if you don't know, then you're probably going to be at a disadvantage later because you didn't decide and you didn't do the right steps. Like going, it's like going to candy shop, but you, they only, they block off 98% of the room and say the only have option is these two, but there's so much more. But no, you're, uh, you're in a boat. I think a lot of people that I know, same thing. They, they don't know by 20 years old what they want to do for the rest of their life. Well, look, Grant, look when, I, when I was going to university, I thought, I personally believed that my outcome was going to be project management of sorts. I wanted accounting as my foundation, kind of like the doctor of business where you understand the, the balance sheet, the cash flows, the numbers of the business. When you understand the numbers, you kind of can do proper analysis and outward looking for a business. So my mindset was, let me be a project manager. Let me run different departments. Let me be in part, let me be included in multiple different aspects of the business. Ironically, looking at equity analysis, it kind of has that same fundamental aspect that you can just look and analyze all kinds of aspects of the business and then project forward uh, a value uh, thesis on the business. And that's when you then enter with a buy or selling position. Exactly. So that transition for me was there, but I like, our group of friends. What is it that lured you into was, this? What do you like the most? It was it? honestly, it was a group of friends helped them. The shit, like, because back in the day when me and Joe, for example, when me and Joe 
we used to talk about how Joe Trudeau was legalizing marijuana. So the back in the day, this is before I went to Italy. This was like a year before I left for Italy. Me and Joe, one of my, one of my oldest friends, he's part of our clique. He, me and him, we were talking about how Trudeau was legalizing marijuana. And we looked at ourselves and we said, like, what if we just gambled? Like our perception of investing at the beginning was pure gambling. It was that. It was, what if we just gambled and we put a bit of money in the stock market? That was our perception. Let's just put it in before it becomes legal, before all these things, before people are talking about it, before the momentum builds. Let's just enter. Let's see what happens. I left for Italy. So I graduated. I was the first one. I get out. I go to Italy. And then when I come back, while I'm over there, you guys had started investing. You guys had officially entered. Yeah, exactly. So, 2015, I think. Yes, was my right first before trade. the summer started or something like that. I came back and then I was the I was the last one between you, Joe, Pucci, and Zach to not enter the market. So yeah. I came in, I was like, okay, now I gotta join you guys. <laughs> okay, Let's do so this for you. So that was the group helped me. It'd be nice. part of the group. So I entered, and then from there, it just became an obsession of understanding how my money is being placed and what's happening to my money. Well, I think it was also because we also made a pretty good amount of money playing cannabis stocks. Like that feeling when you yeah. get like a pretty good return and you're looking at your training account, you're like, I actually just made some money. That probably inspires a lot of people, right? That, that's, what, that's what got me going. I was like, wow, I actually know how to day trade. Yeah. I think my, uh, my portfolio here. everyone made money during those years. And then right. it, got to, it got to the point where your hair cutter is talking about weed stocks. <laughs> I think that's uh, early, know, early signal yeah, for an I exit. I was, we, we got in on like Aurora when it was $2. Canopy was like 5 to $10 range. And then you, you hear a year after it's legal, people, me, I bought a 50 bucks. I bought a 60 bucks and I'm looking at them. You, you guys are either going really freaking long or you just take a loss because yeah, it's uh, coming back down <laughs> it, it got to levels of price valuations that was price to the, speculation to the, to the moon. revenues the company had to execute its business plan for the next 20 years to perfection for it to justify paying the, a premium what you were going to pay and the political and the, the, <clears> the landscape itself would have had to grow because that's the issue we're seeing now in canada is the fact that the, the, the system, the government system is not allowing the market to develop as quick as it wanted to. So it overproduced, it overcreated capacity that it then had to then reduce because the market demand wasn't there because of the fact that the system didn't allow the distribution channels to sell to the population. So then it had to regress to cut costs and adapt and survive to then eventually be able to regrow down the line is the idea. Yeah, it's, uh, it's what I like most, I guess, about uh, financial markets and my job is that every day is something new. You're, you're looking at, like, just, just look at the news flow that comes out in any given month. It's every day, it's Trump says this. Next day, it's about China. People want that. Next day, it's crude oil. The next, it's always changing. And then if you're actually in the industry and you're, you're in front of clients putting out research or talking to them all day, you need to know how these industries work. So for me, I have to go learn about how does a gold um, mine work? How, how do you produce gold same, then the same, next day same you're thing for me with agricultural products yeah so it's like you, every day is you guys and, you and guys cool. you guys agree that the the level and complexity of everything we have to do post school in this industry of finance in which we're trying to build ourselves is far more difficult and time consuming in terms of educating ourselves than school was i I wouldn't say it's like time consuming and difficult. By time consuming as in you spend your day reading and but paying if, attention. If that's, that's what you what love I mean. to do. Right, it's but, almost no, like a pleasure. No, no, I'm not. I didn't say anything about the whether you like it, dislike it. All I'm trying to say is simply is this, is you spend your day observing the market, yes or no? 
I mean, I, for me, I think this has been the greatest learning experience and I'm like, no, my no, head but is, that's, a, but that's, but that's what I'm saying though. The amount it, of, I think it's a passion of, though, right? Like if you, yes, like to Lucas, it, to Lucas's point, if you have a passion about this, it doesn't feel like work, you know, yeah, but that exactly. was never the question. My question you're is, saying is this, do you spend more time learning? If you're entering, your if you're going to enter this and you're going to say, I want to do finance, I want to follow the markets. You have to understand the amount of, the amount of time yes. paying attention to these variables is important. You need to put in a lot of legwork on your own. Yes, a, lot of, a lot of observing and a lot of deducing and a lot of conversation and reading has to be done. I, I agree. Absolutely. That's all Absolutely. I'm saying. You, you, you got you to gotta put the time in before you see the strong yeah. results. Or the other expression is, here are my tools. I got to sharpen my tools first before I can actually start doing this. Yeah. Right? That's, that's what you mean, right? It's almost like, yeah. so it would be like, so it'd be like school giving you a plank of sheet of metal and then saying, now it's up to me to carve something out of it and actually yeah. use it. Yeah. I think that's just life in general, right? It comes down yeah, to really it, anything. It Obviously, is. it's just a really unique situation with financial markets. It's, it's the whole world is connected. We live on an economic planet, right? Yeah. But the, the so, world is economic. Anything that makes the world yeah. move, the reason why we drive a car, the reason why, how we drive the car, the reason why we go out and go to the store is because we have money. How do we make money? Because we have businesses. How do businesses work? Because people want things. Okay. So because there's a psychological demand, businesses come out and they create something. But there's a whole cycle to everything that goes on in this world. So for me, from a intellectual perspective, I freaking love this world because you learn everything and anything and exactly. you can indulge conversations day in and day out about it. Cross industry, cross assets you're and looking you're, at this you're looking at that you can never be bored you need to just dig deeper and just learn more there's a lot um anyone even i know bosses that are 50 years in the industry they're learning every day like every day is something new and something else to look at because the market moves forward so the moment you stop coronavirus for example forward. this is you're unprecedented sure. no one you couldn't have predicted this predicted this or studied its outcomes we knew we knew that the market was high that we all agreed on but we did not see this outlook. We just saw maybe a pullback, a significant pullback. Well, the they, were, they were pricing it. They were pricing in as some kind of a recession. This just magnified everything, right? Yeah. Well, they, earnings were, were. If you want to look at like, to, uh, to, like before all this, to say for a recession, it would imply that there was a negative growth. Employment was still at all-time highs. People were still spending at all-time highs. The, what it is, we passed peak cycle because earnings were slowing. Like, yes, they're growing, but they're growing at a slower pace. Once earnings start yes. reducing, and well, there's going to be some a... cost-cutting. Eventually, when you lay off staff, then there's going to be less output in the economy. <laughs> we are getting towards there. We weren't there yet. The, the numbers are coming out, low unemployment rates. Everything on paper looks still pretty fine. It was just a little bit of a slowing going on. And then, boom, boom coronavirus-led recession. It was a Friday. I remember this. Friday was the first was day. February. Uh, I just remember it was a Friday because I was literally helping March, someone. March, March 10th, I believe, or March 12th. We it were, was a I, Friday. That was the first down. I remember that. Uh, the, but February 24th was the first down. I, I actually but, remember this perfectly because yeah. I, was in, I was in Vegas at the time. I had bought puts on SPY the Friday. And I wake up, Warren Buffett's on TV and he's talking about what the next thing for Berkshire was. The market, the futures were down like 900. I was like, holy crap, I just made like 10 times my money. You know what I mean? That was, Monday. That, while that, now the volatility has sort of come, come down a bit, but while that was going on, there were some crazy anomalies going on in the market. So you're seeing gold sell off with equities and yeah. bonds selling off. It was just a, every asset class. Portfolio manager nightmare. Because you can't so even. It was crazy to witness to witness that to see 
everything, how it moved. And then all the dealers and banks, no one wants to quote anything. Everything was super wide if they're quoting it. Liquidity dried up. It was some interesting times for sure. That was of my short tenor was craziest moment of my career for sure. What what was the one lesson that you've learned that you can look back on right now and say, wow, like I learned a lesson here. It might've felt like a failure at the time, but like you look back on it now and you're like, I'm so happy that happened. Lesson learned, I would say always have cash on hand to take advantage of big opportunities that I agree happen. With that one. That, it could be a tail a... swan event, but if you don't have the cash on hand, boom, it's going to leave that opportunity is gone. And it will never come back. I will always from this, I will always, always have an outlook that you should build a, porf- a part of your portfolio should always remain cash proportionate according to how much capital you have, which you should always, always, always have cash be ready. Yeah, exactly. Always for something. Even if you have to wait 10 years to put it to work, put wait 10 years to put it to work. It, it's just, if you can literally hold it for 10 years, let it depreciate by inflation every year. And that one so opportunity will arise yeah. maybe once in 10 years. And if you seize that opportunity, your return will be Amplified. still astronomical. Yeah, exactly. Like it was worth doing. So it sounds like you're more of like a value, a value type of long-term fundamental play well, investor. Look, right? you, in your in your own portfolio of things, you usually you're more of a value guy more than you are tech. Value, I, I I tend to do some swing trades. Okay, so. but you could still do value swing trades. Like I'll do swing trades too, but you still apply fundamentals to it. Yeah, well, I'll make sure that this business, for example, you buy buy buying the dip was a trade that works before this crisis every dip that happened in a major value play, it was just going to go back up. So if you make sure the company is tech, solid, well, my focus, my focus was tech in this dip. Tech and on any dip is, is truly easy, like a yeah. buy. Cause look at it now. It's up like 20%. They're all back. They're, all back. They're up year to date. I think 20, 25%. And it's like every other stock is down. So there you go. If it goes to show that tech tech is, is untouchable. And it's yeah. a pivotal point for her. The Q, the QQQ, I'm just looking at it here, almost has like a V type of bounce here. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a strong sector for sure. So yeah. um, what's interesting too is, again, like, you know, there's so many lessons that we're taking right now. Um, what's like one thing you want to leave the listeners with? To kind of like, so first of all, most of the listeners, they're either curious to learn more about finance or they're probably kind of in like, the early part of their careers, like, like all of us are. Um, but like, what's one thing you would say is like the most important thing for them to kind of break into the industry? I would say to the listeners who maybe it's very competitive finance, you know, there's like 500 plus applicants for one job. So it might be discouraging at times. I can't make it. But what I would say to them is to focus on their goals, do what they need to do at home, study after hours, put in that work to get those skills, work on projects. If you need to don't give up and don't let someone tell you that um, you don't have a 4.0 GPA. You can't get in. Don't let that affect your motivation and drive to try and break into the industry. Cause you could, you could work on stuff. You can get an internship, work up slowly, get another one and then eventually present, get your opportunity to, to come in the field. So don't give up and, keep working on yourself until you have the skills, I guess. 
Solid. You, can I, I just want to, I think, I think people, I think a lot of people also need to realize that even if let's say you cannot establish a professional career in the world of finance, let's say you can't. And that was the route you want to take. You also have access as a retail person to be able to build your own personal wealth because of the finance world. If the professional route doesn't work for you or it doesn't happen, you can still have access to the market and still build your own personal wealth. I'm think, not in it. I'm not in the actual, I'm not part of an institution. I'm not part of the real part of companies. I'm building my own little niche, mm -hmm. my own little place, but I still have access to the capital markets. And I can still build my entire wealth through it. Well, I think it's also because like we're in a world now where anybody can open a discounted brokerage account and start learning and start trading. I also say, I also think that like, if you're trying to build wealth and maybe Lucas, you can chime in on this is don't use a practice account, right? I find yeah, I the best lesson that you could get, and this just, you, you hit the, you hit like you nailed it perfectly is start trading your own money, right? If you want to take the trading yeah. route, if you're not that worried, go in the investment round, look for good balance sheet items, but like, it's better to learn how to lose your own money first, because that actually, that actually teaches you sort of the emotional aspect of it, you know, and then you're able to kind of control it later on when you see crazy stuff like this happening, right? Exactly. Yeah. You feel the, the connection. I think trading is a very psychological game. A huge. And you're going to, what, sell into fear because everyone's sold and then secure a loss. or it's, it's very psychological to hold on to something or... And see it move. Or to you down. see something that's deeply distressed. Uh, take a restaurant company in the COVID crisis, Lightspeed, for example. Everyone's selling this stock. And then there's a certain emotional attachment. Okay. This, this must mean it's garbage, but no, look at it now. It's already done almost hundred percent from where it was. So it's like, there is but some you, psychological do you know, aspect. Do you, was that just a pure psychological balance or was it? Well, it's just cause reason? that was like, I think it was, over, yeah, I think it was oversold at that point. It was oversold yeah. at that point. It went down way like half of what it was at IPO. And but let's, let's say, let's say yes, their business is affected in one year, one year of cash flows, maybe two years of cash flows, but that's assuming that's only assuming that let's say, let's say the market, let's say the restaurant market is this big. Okay. So you have a thousand restaurants opened. Okay. So, and you own a thousand percent of it. If 20% of the market dies, goes bankrupt. So a bunch of restaurants vanish. You have now 80, you have, you have now 800 left. Yes. Okay. Well now your, your piece of the pie just shrank and now you have to wait for an outlook where you have all those, you have more restaurants that open back up to then regain that same market position, mm -hmm. which, so, and so you still have some fundamental difference, of course, which can justify a little, yes. a little sell off, but 90 to 80% of your market cap destroyed in literally a week. Oh, it was that bad. Huh? It's like, um, it was a $45 stock on February 20th. And this thing just hit. 10, so imagine, 10 bucks. imagine you're imagine you're in that trade way at IPO IPO prices, and you're it's now like going down and down. Like what do you do? You sell and see that's the emotions that come into play. Um. So what you were saying before, definitely trading your own money. Yeah. You learn how to deal with those emotions and to the trade. You, don't get me wrong. Everyone I've done horrible trades off emotion. We all have. Learn, We're all guilty of it. it. Like, I find that's <laughs> I find that's the best lesson though. Like I did um, not. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share this. But my biggest lesson was Aurora. Okay, I owned it shitload at what two dollars. <laughs> a lot of money in it. I did not sell it at fifteen, and I was up seventy five thousand dollars. The greed. 
these guys Nick sell no yeah there's a certain I was too but this was my first this was my first experience of a run up of like a significant run up based on psychology yeah. and I'm there I'm like holy shit I'm going to go I'm going to push it through legalization because it'll probably pop again exactly and then I was like, well, what the hell did I, so I took my, most of my profits at around $10. Well, cause you were, you, you, you kind of, you probably had that little part in your mind where like, oh crap, it's actually going to go lower now. Let me take yeah, some Yeah. And then I was like, what did you, then I realized like a bubble is a bubble and there is, it's pure <laughs> speculation. It's pure revenue. Like the fundamental, the fundamental hold of what I was trying to get to, like, it just didn't make sense anymore. So I was like, why I could, I should have just taken it. And yeah, that's investor psychology. You hold on to your winners longer than you should because you get greedy. And then your losers, rather than selling a them. nice stop loss and selling yeah. them, you hold on yeah. to those because you yeah. want them to re recover because there's a bigger emotional attachment to a loss. So you don't want to realize it. And uh, yeah, it's a, I agree with you. Trade your own money to start. Even if you don't know what you're doing, uh, start with the stocks that you know brands you know yeah, nike exactly. that's what we're talking about with uh jen there from great capital so buy these stocks that you know you're comfortable with these brands are going to be around in the future maybe take some decisions on your own okay i think um this industry is gonna persevere yeah. do really well buy a stock in that industry see how it does and trading on your own is definitely um a good lesson but it also helps. I feel like also if you're going to enter this world, My it, first, helps, it helps to have a network of people to kind of talk to and collaborate with. But also be weary. One stock is too, too cheap. There's usually a reason for that. My first trade was 2015. This is National Bank of Greece. <laughs> okay, it's a $200 stock that went to like 24 cents. Me, as a young, um, not even 17-year-old, whatever, thinks oh it's a national bank of greece it like it's a country's bank how can this be a penny stock one day greece will get out of their sovereign debt crisis and things will be okay but no there's a reason why that stock is 24 cents and look at today we're almost like five six years from then and greece is still a total disaster when it comes to their, their debt it's, uh, you and there's no the, there's no resolution anytime soon and remember, that stock i'm pretty sure is at like one penny you remember now. what chris said you remember the thing you said there the value gap for like example, we used the reference to Air Canada. How, for example, okay, because the all-time high is a hundred dollars, something dips to twenty bucks, it means that the upside is back to hundred. Right, right, and no, I, it doesn't. It doesn't, right? Because people have this tendency, and it was funny because I had gotten a lot of questions um, while the while the crash was happening. Everyone's like, "Do I buy banks? Do I buy Air Canada? Do I buy airlines?" And I, the one thing I said, I'm like, the first question you have to ask is like, is the macro situation favorable for them in the short run? Most of them said no. The fundamentals, look at their shifting. balance sheet, right? It's completely, airlines is a perfect example. Like, and there's a reason why Warren Buffett is not investing in that right now. Yeah. I was, uh, when he, look, when, when he, when he made his first position, when everything was happening and it, I saw, I saw Buffett, he put like, I'm there shitting on airlines. All of a sudden I see Buffett make a position in Delta. He entered a position in Delta. I remember that, yeah. In my mind, in my mind, I'm going, what the hell is he doing? Either I'm completely stupid yeah. or he did something that he just didn't realize the micro situation, the fundamental shift. And, and like, he's going to eventually regret that. And then guess what? A month later, what does he say? He sold all airlines because it was a mistake. He, he realized he admitted it, it too. So like that's, exactly. again, that's an, I admire that if somebody can admit they screwed up, that's huge. And he played the value gap. He saw, yeah. well, Delta just took a massive dip. I'm going to buy it cheap. And then after realize, wait, no, that doesn't make sense. It's not the same type of business anymore. Yeah, exactly.
it's a challenging environment for airlines. Yeah. And then a lot of them came into this crisis over levered over leverage. So American yeah. airlines was the worst balance sheet yeah. going into this. And, and there's target prices for American airlines of one penny. <laughs> Oh, I'm not even because uh, I, I feel, I feel a disaster. For I them. feel right now. I'm not even gonna lie. I would bet that some of them are gonna end up transitioning over into the private side sector rather than become remain public companies. Yeah, we'll so, see. I mean, uh, as long as the government doesn't bail them out, right? Because that's that's they, really the I, next thing. I think potentially. They will. Potentially, I mean, who knows? Anyway, Lucas, where can they find you on uh, on 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 social media? Do you have the gram? Do you use Instagram? LinkedIn. I, uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll direct your viewers from my LinkedIn. I'll, I'll be glad to take them questions and um, sit for coffee one day if you want to learn more. Are you going to answer everybody's questions? How to break into. Yeah, you gonna, you gonna ask I, I have. Usually people reach out to me. I have no, no, I, meant, I, was, I was making a joke. Like, let's say 100 people start saying, oh, Lucas, I want to meet you. You're going to go meet 100 people. Okay, well, <laughs> it's not feasible. Every, that's 100 opportunities. What do you mean? Yeah. But no, I, I, I think uh, I'm a firm believer in helping people out. When I started, I reached out to people on LinkedIn, gave them questions. They were all happy to help me. So pay it forward. If people want to ask me stuff, by all means, go ahead. Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. Anyway, interesting time right now. We're going to get through this. Thanks so much for coming on. We'll definitely keep you in the loop and obviously have you on in further segments when stuff starts to get more material, uh, stuff starts to materialize, right? In terms of economic stuff. So appreciate yeah. it, man. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me and uh, all the best. And I hope you manage this coronavirus downturn appropriately and make some money off of it. Maybe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is the Take goal. Care, guys. All right. See you.